Well, thank all of, thanks to all of you for coming, and I'm delighted to be here. Um, I, Alex told me that I have the freedom to take questions as we go along, so feel free to interrupt me um, as I'm speaking. I will try otherwise to limit my comments to about 35 to 40 minutes to give us plenty of time um, to have a discussion. And uh, I guess I heard some, some murmurs about the current book project. If people have questions about that, we can talk <laughs> about that one as well. Uh, so it is um, an unattributed but off-quoted phrase in the refugee literature, you may be familiar with it, that one refugee uh, is a novelty, and 10 refugees um, are boring, and 100 refugees are a menace. Right? So this phrase um, offers, I think, an interesting, useful, if somewhat disquieting preamble to what I'm going to talk about today, which is namely the strategic use of cross-border population movements as uh, political and military weapons, particularly, um, most commonly, as um, instruments of coercion. Uh, so if we think about coercion traditionally, we're usually talking about exercises involving threats or the use of military force. So the traditional definition of coercion being the practice of inducing or preventing changes in political behavior through the use of threats, intimidation, or some other form of pressure, principally um, military pressure or the threat thereof. Coercive engineered migrations or migration-driven coercion, if you will, non-military alternative whereby cross-border population movements are deliberately created and or manipulated in order to similarly right, induce political, military, and or economic concessions from a target state or states. This is a tool that has been used both by state and non-state actors principally uh, but not exclusively against more powerful state-level targets. Now, to give you an example and make this, um, uh, this concept ever so slightly less abstract, um, I would remind you of an exchange that reportedly took place between then-Chinese uh, Premier Deng Xiaoping and U.S. President Jimmy Carter during their historic 1979 meeting. During this meeting, according to those who were in the room, uh, Carter was pressing Deng to do more to support human rights in China, particularly the right of the Chinese to freely emigrate. Um, now, witnesses say to, um, to uh, President Carter's um, entities, Deng turned to President Carter and smiled sweetly and said, well, precisely how many Chinese would you like, Mr. President? One million? Ten million? Thirty million? Right. Knowing full well that the answer was zero. Now, we don't know uh, that Deng had any coercive intent in, in responding to Carter as, as he did. Uh, so this case doesn't make it into my data set. However, it's worth noting that any discussion about human rights in China summarily ended with, with Deng's retort. Uh, so fast forward to today, and the Chinese find themselves in a rather different position. Indeed, we know um, unequivocally that the Chinese have been pouring large sums of financial and food aid into North Korea and have been reticent to pressure the North Koreans, um, particularly with respect to their nuclear weapons program, much to the consternation, I might add, of several other members of to this, or several other um, contributors to the Sixth Party talks in large part because the Chinese are very concerned about the possible destabilizing consequences of a mass outflow of North Koreans into China should the North Korean regime fall. Now, cases of course of engineered migration or threats thereof are not limited, however, to East Asia and East Asian countries. We've also seen um, in relatively recent past 
uh, the use of this tool in, um, in Africa. Chadian President uh, Debbie threatened to expel Darfurian refugees if the international community didn't step, uh, step up and attempt to, or to do more to, to um, um, negotiate an end to the crisis over Darfur. Uh, Debbie was concerned, um, among other things, about the presence of Chadian rebels on Sudanese soil and uh, pushed um, some key UN member states to pressure the Sudanese to um, stop supporting the Chadian rebels. In addition, uh, at least in 2002 and 2004, possibly subsequently, uh, but very publicly in 2002 to 2004, Belarusian President Lukashenko threatened to flood Western Europe with migration, uh, with migrants and asylum seekers if the European Union member states did not um, come or did not um, offer up uh, large sums of money. Uh, Lukashenko was not successful in his attempt to extort money from EU member states in this case. However, it's worth noting that um, in the subsequent 10 years, EU member states have um, spent up to 1 billion euros trying to protect themselves against future attempts at this kind of predation. And I suspect it's no secret to anyone in this room, but the dirty little secret about a major concern about what's going on in Ukraine. Yes, everyone's talking about natural gas, but there's also an impolite concern about what might happen if there is a, a, an outbreak of um, widespread civil war in Ukraine and large numbers of Ukrainians start moving west. In addition, 2004, Libyan once and future rogue leader uh, Muammar Gaddafi was able to see that the last of the remaining um, sanctions were lifted against his, his country, not as is commonly advertised in exchange for giving up the um, Libyan weapons of mass destruction program, not in exchange for acknowledging responsibility for the Lockerbie bombing, and not for repudiating terrorism, but rather quite explicitly um, in exchange for agreeing to help um, European states stop or staunch an outflow of North Africans across the Mediterranean and into Western Europe. And finally, closer to, um, to my home, despite the fact that uh, only 35% of Americans approved of, of this mission in 1994, then exiled uh, Haitian President Jean-Bertrand Aristide was able to, shall we say, persuade the Clinton administration to agree to launch a forced entry operation um, to see him reinstalled into power in Haiti uh, in in exchange for staunching an outflow of Haitian boat people that, it must be noted, Aristide played no small part in actually uh, creating himself. So these cases are not unique, but it gives you some sense of the geographical breadth of uh, the use of this tool, of the uh, various objectives to which uh, would-be coursers um, have have used the tool or attempted to um, affect effective coercion, um, and we'll talk about a few more as um, the rest of the time. Most of what I'll do in the remaining time I have is say a bit about uh, 
the coercers, those who engage in this kind of coercion, and to what end. We've said a little bit about that already, but I'll, I'll say a bit more. I'll talk about how often we see this kind of coercion attempted, and when it is attempted, how often it tends to be successful or to fail. I'll then say a bit about why in the world this unorthodox tool ever works. Right? It's a very peculiar um, set of decisions that we you know, call that um, entail using one's own people as weapons. I'll then walk through some evidence from the 2011 use of coercion um, where Gaddafi grossly overplayed and fatally overplayed his hand uh, to give you a sense of how a case ends up in the data set or not. And then if people are interested and time allows, I'll conclude with some potential ways target states can respond to or protect themselves against this kind of uh, coercion and by extension uh, provide some protection to the true victims of this kind of coercion that displace themselves. So there are three types of coercers. Uh, the first type is what I call generators. And generators are those actors who quite simply, right, create or threaten to create uh, outflows themselves. A prominent example is that of Cuban President Fidel Castro, who not once, not twice, but thrice has successfully used course of engineered migration against the U.S. Uh, in 1965 and 1994, and most famously in 1980 in the context of the Mario Boatlift, in which uh, 125,000 Cubans ended up um, relocating to the United States. Uh, second kind of coercer is uh, the category I call agents provocateur. These are actors who do not directly generate or threaten to generate outflows themselves, but rather act in ways that they have reason to believe will indirectly result in the creation of a migration or refugee crisis. Um, one prominent uh, example is that of the Kosovo Liberation Army in the context of um, unrest and ultimately uh, civil conflict inside Kosovo, explicitly and self-consciously attacked Serb police and military targets knowing full well that the Serbs would brutally crack down on Kosovo Albanians um, and thus indirectly helping facilitate the massive outflow of Kosovo Albanians. To be sure... <laughs> Yugoslav President Slobodan Milosevic played no small role in this himself, so I'm not uh, suggesting that we should uh, lay all of this at the hands of the Kosovo Liberation Army, only that they too played a role. Third category of coursers are what I call opportunists. These are actors who neither directly create outflows or indirectly act to create outflows, but rather simply um, manipulate or exploit outflows that have been created by others. A prominent historical example is that of Pakistani President Ziel al-Haq, who in exchange for hosting upwards of 3 million Afghan refugees on Pakistani territory, uh, not only got a closer military alliance with the United States, uh, large quantities of uh, military and other aid, uh, a cessation of U.S. criticism of Pakistanis Pakistan's rather problematic human rights record, but according to some sources, and I must note here that the evidence is sketchy but suggestive, uh, well, we know for certain that the U.S. ceased um, ceased criticizing or pushing back against the Pakistani nuclear program. There's some evidence to suggest that the U.S. actually started providing material aid um, to help facilitate the creation of a Pakistani, um, Pakistani atomic bomb. Like I said, evidence is sketchy, but there's some there. I've said a bit about the aims and objectives of the, the, um, 
those who employ course of engineer migration, but it's also, I just want to reiterate that as with traditional military coercions, aims can be as um, prosaic as demands for diplomatic recognition or for financial aid to um, things as as extreme as assistance with regime change, as we saw with, uh, with Aristide, and he was not unique. So how often does this kind of coercion happen? Uh, At least since the 1951 Refugee Convention came into effect, we've seen on average about one case, at least one case per year. Uh, For reasons we can talk about later if people are interested, if you haven't (laughs) read the book, Um, there's... It's probably not an accident that uh, the number of cases may have been you know, may have been rising since um, the Refugee Convention came into force. There's some reason to believe that the number of cases might go down in the future. We can talk about why that might be the case as well. Um, for reasons I'll say a bit more about in just a minute, I can confidently say, however, that on average, one case a year is the floor, the minimum number of cases. Um, why there may be more, I'll say, as I said, I'll say a bit more about in just a minute. When this kind of coercion is attempted, uh, it succeeds at least in part, which is to say, would be coercers get at least some of what they're after about three quarters of the time. Uh, if we impose a more stringent measure of success, uh, sort of demanding, if you will, that coercers uh, have got, you know, get or have gotten more or less all of what they've been after, the success rate goes down to about 57%. Now, you might say, I don't know, is that, any much, is that much better than a coin toss? You know, how, 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 how impressed should I be by 57%? Uh, it's actually still a pretty, pretty significant uh, rate of success if we compare it, say, for instance, to the U.S.'s own um, record of success in course of diplomacy. Anyone have some sense of what those numbers look like? Depending on the data set, somewhere between 19 and 37.5%. So 57% is non-trivial a rate of success. That said, this could still be a pretty lousy, pretty um, substandard method of coercion for a couple of reasons. It may be the case that only the most vulnerable are targeted. And so we see a high uh, rate of success because uh, those who engage in it only self-select those that they imagine will be quite vulnerable. Um, Talk about other selection effects issues later if people are interested. In addition, this is a dangerous tool. It tends not to be a weapon of first resort for those, um, for those who employ it. For one thing, you know, people are um, not dumb bombs, right? They don't necessarily leave in the number that the number that the would-be coercer would like. They don't necessarily go where would-be coercers want them to once they cross the borders. The people that they want, or they would alter, you know, sort of ideally like to leave are not necessarily those who leave. Uh, An an outflow that's too large can be domestically destabilizing. So this is not a tool for the faint of heart. Still, uh, for those with relatively few other um, options in their policy quivers, given the rate of success, it has been um, used a non-trivial number of times. In terms of thinking about how often it happens relative to other common events in international politics, um, more common than civil wars, more common than immediate uh, deterrence crises, far less common than 
than mids. Um, but like I said, not this is a common, relatively common phenomenon in international politics. In terms of success rates, as I said, this is a relatively successful tool when attempted um, compared to economic stations, U.S.'s own course of diplomatic uh, history record, and so on. So, big question you might have is if this, if you know, Greenhill's right, and this kind of coercion is so common, why is this the first time I'm hearing about it? Um, and I argue that there are at least four reasons why you may not have heard about um, about this kind of coercion outside of my book, or maybe you know about a particular case from um, if you're an area expert. Uh, but I think that the two that are highlighted in bold are most significant. So uh, number one, often, but uh, certainly not always, these these attempts at coercion are embedded within outflows that are created for other reasons as well. So it is probably well known by everyone in this room that in 1972, Ugandan President Idi Amin um, expelled all the British passport holders from Uganda. The conventional wisdom is that, that this was a naked attempt at economic expropriation. Why do we think this, know this to be the case? Because those who were expelled were, generally speaking, the owners of all the big businesses in Uganda. So it sort of looked like, well, what, what it means after is the appropriation of the economic assets of all of those he's kicking out of the country. What is less well known, but documented in detail, is that this happened at the same time as the British were threatened to draw down military um, aid and to cease engaging in military training with the Ugandans. And um, in the context of launching the threat to expel the British passport holders, uh, Amin gave the British a convenient 90-day deadline to change their mind about whether or not they actually wanted to cut uh, military aid um, and stop having training exercises with the British the British didn't take I mean, up on his offer, but clearly there was an attempt at coercion going on at the same time. Uh, when this kind of coercion... Oh, sorry, I forgot to say. And the other key reason I think um, that this tool has been hiding in plain sight is that sort of thinking about flip sides of the same coin, neither of those who have been targeted by actors like or, you know, quote unquote, tin pot dictators like Fidel Castro or obsequious tyrants like Eric Honecker, they have relatively few incentives to admit that they've been so coerced. Indeed, sometimes uh, history of this kind of coercion is not even shared within states' own foreign policy um, communities. So uh, we now know that we were seven or eight days into the Mario boat lift before Victor Palmieri, the most senior U.S. official um, tasked with dealing with this crisis, was told that Castro had done this before. Right? He came out of me and said, are you kidding me? <laughs> he did this before? Why did nobody tell me? Um, this was not a unique case. At the same time, those who would use their people right, or other people as weapons are often not keen to advertise the fact. So for every very public um, issue or you know, issuance of a threat, such as we saw with Lukashenko and serially with Gaddafi, there are many, at least as many, um, private examples where threats have been um, um, levied. Uh, indeed, uh, I found by accident several cases that were outgrowths of the 1967 war. I was in the London Baines Johnson 
library, presidential library, uh, looking at documents about Vietnam where I knew this kind of coercion had taken place. And in 1967, uh, executive files, there was discussion about Jordanian President uh, Hussein making threats both against the Israelis and against the Americans. Like, oh, well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> so some cases have just fallen into my lap. Uh, occasionally, I'll give a talk like this one, and someone will come up to me afterward and say, well, do you know about X case? And I will say, no, and then I will write it down. And so if anyone knows of any, any other cases I ought to investigate, please do let me know. Um, so like I said, this is a tool that's been hiding in plain sight. It may be the case that I've happened upon all of the cases that there are to, to, um, to be found. Um, but if that's the case, then we see it happening about once a year, or have us between 51 and in recent years. So how does this tool, how and why does this tool ever work? I argue that there are two pathways by which coercive engineer migration may be affected. Uh, loosely speaking, I think of them as capacity swamping and political agitating or political agitation. The first pathway which we principally but not exclusively see uh, used in the developing world relies on a would-be coercer's attempt to, or uh, would-be coercer's ability to persuade the target that um, he or she um, can undermine the target's ability, its, its carrying capacity, its ability to accommodate, uh, accept, uh, or assimilate a given group of, of migrants or refugees. In contrast, political agitation, uh, which we more commonly see used in the developed world, um, sometimes we see capacity swamping, to be sure, in the developed world. More often in the developed world, we see what I call political agitation, which relies on um, would-be coercers uh, capacity to undermine a target's willingness to accommodate a given group of refugees or migrants. And uh, in whether we're talking about capacity swamping or political agitation, what, we're, um, what this kind of coercion relies upon in security studies parlance is a coercion, it's coercion by punishment. So in contrast to coercion by denial, in uh, coercion by punishment strategies, a challenger on the international level uh, does not attempt to get what he or she wants directly from the target government, but rather imposes risk and costs on the target's domestic uh, population or other audiences with the expectation that those audience members will then pressure their governments to change their policies. In this regard, um, uh, course of engineer migration is like terrorism. Right? It's like strategic bombing. That, the, that, as I said, the costs and risk are imposed on the population with the expectation that the population will pressure the target. And as is true of strategic bombing and terrorism, the principal victims of this kind of coercion tend not to be synonymous with the principal targets. So to make this um, a little less abstract, one, one well-known historical example of capacity swamping is that of the 19, uh, set, well, resulted in the 1971 Indo-Pak War, uh, which eventually resulted in the creation of the state of Bangladesh. But in this crisis, about 10 million, 10 million um, Pakistanis crossed over the border from East Pakistan into India following the outbreak of the Civil War. Uh, India accused Pak Pakistan's leadership of deliberately instigating the outflow to simultaneously, um, if you will, 
you know, solve its own internal problems, as well as um, to pressure India into to ending its support for the insurgent um, Mukti, uh, Mukti Bihini. Uh, in an impassioned speech, India's UN ambassador essentially called, you know, point blank, essentially called capacity swamping a, a form of warfare. If aggression against a foreign country means it strains its social structure, ruins its finances, it has to give up territory for sheltering refugees, what is the difference between that kind of aggression and the other more classical kind of war? Right? This was an act of war designed to destabilize India, according to the uh, UN ambassador. <laughs> Uh, to be sure, it must be noted that the Indians were indeed providing arms and logistical assistance as well as refuge and, uh, refuge and training to the, um, to the Pakistani insurgents. Um, a couple of examples of political agitation. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, serial offender Muammar Gaddafi, and I'll talk more about um, him in just a minute, but he's so blatant, right? Pay me 1.4 billion pounds and I'll stop Europe from turning black. Uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of ambiguity there. Um, in terms of what he's trying to, what kind of uh, response he's trying to engender, the fear he's trying to play on inside Europe, also um, you know, pretty unambiguous. What will be the reaction of the white Christian Europeans to this mass of hungry, uneducated Africans? We have to imagine this could work. And before it does, we have to work together. Okay. Uh, it speaks for itself. Uh, in the context of the Kosovo crisis and the War over Kosovo, 1998-1999, the Yugoslav government sent uh, NATO member states messages. Uh, in frontline NATO states, these messages seem to have been received before the massive outflow of Kosovo Albanians. Um, in some of the states a bit farther afield, including um, only ever so slightly farther afield, including Germany, it was only after the outflow started that Joska Fischer acknowledged that, that Milosevic had told him that he could empty Kosovo within a week. Uh, didn't happen quite that quickly, but it was um, a rapid outflow of nearly a million people. So uh, to give you some sense of why Gaddafi might have thought that his exercise in pressuring uh, EU member states um, in 2011 might have worked. Um, he'd had several non-trivial successes in the decade leading up to uh, 2011. So I already mentioned the uh, success in 2004 of having the last of the remaining sanctions lifted. Uh, he was albeit only temporarily, we now know in the fullness of time, diplomatically rehabilitated, received a non-trivial quantity of financial aid. Um, apparently he liked what he saw, so Gaddafi went back to the well, um, and I don't mean to be glib about this, but he really was a serial offender. Uh, he went back to the Europeans uh, in a slightly more subtle way in 2006, not subtly at all in 2008, and still less subtly in 2010, uh, with claims right, such as, uh, unless his demands were met, the Europeans ran the risk of becoming another Africa. Right? Tomorrow, Europe might not even be European. Uh, these claims were public, and um, despite 
growing antagonism in several EU member states and growing frustration with Gaddafi. Uh, he was successful in getting at least of some of what he was after um, in all of these three additional cases um, in as late as in 2010. Uh, an arrangement was signed with the EU that provided a memorandum of understanding on immigration, um, promise of 500 million euros over three years uh, in kind assistance and provision of equipment to uh, boats and so on and so forth. So he was, he'd been successful serially. He was not so successful come 2011. That didn't mean mean he didn't try. So in February 2011, when the unrest that had started in Tunisia, later became known at least for a time as the Arab Spring, when this unrest spread to uh, Libya, uh, Gaddafi called EU ministers to Tripoli and essentially said, right, you, you should stop supporting the protesters or I will stop serving as Europe's Coast Guard. Um, the EU ministers did not, however, respond as Gaddafi wanted this time around, and evidence suggests that um, there are at least three three reasons. One, it had become clear to the Europeans by this point that Gaddafi was simply going to become a serial recidivist, and this, you know, he was going to continue to play this game for as long as they would continue to pay. Um, number two, uh, they had come to the conclusion, at least within, I should say, within France and Italy, that it wasn't clear that um, that they might be, if you will, put it another way, they'd be damned if they did and damned if they didn't that whether or not Gaddafi was removed from power, they might still be facing the same problem. And they were certainly going to be continuing to have to deal with him if he remained in power. And by making um, public, explicit threats to engage in large-scale massacres of his people on the ground, he provided the Europeans um, with a nice um, rationale for seeing him removed from power. So how do we know for certain that in 2011, uh, Gaddafi was attempting to engage in course of engineered migration. For a case to make it into my data set, I have to find evidence of um, course of intent, of strategic motivations, and also evidence that um, outflows have been um, say or. Uh, orchestrated or uh, that there, there have to be patterns of change over time. So uh, we should see variation in the size of flows, the patterns of flows, the natures of flows, if they're actually being manipulated. So do we see this in the case of 2011? In terms of course of intent, um, I've already mentioned a couple of explicit threats, but the, the ones I've already mentioned are not unique. Um, after his initial threats um, in February of 2011 were not heated uh, when NATO started humanitarian operations and then uh, uh, went on to create the no-fly zone and uh, initiated air operations. Uh, Gaddafi turned, up, turned on the tap but also made threats to essentially turn the entire Med into a battlefield with thousands of people invading Europe. And you know, just to make sure there could be no mistake, right? If I'm gone, right, there'll be no one to stop them anymore. In case you didn't get it, let me reiterate: uh, Was there evidence of orchestration? 
Most definitely. Uh, the size and the speed, the pace of the outflows uh, came and went. It ebbed and flowed with his promises and his threats. So he's, you know, the number and size of outflows stopped and started based on, you know, if you do this, I might you know, respond in a, in a congenial way. So there were periods of time when there were no outflows and then there were surges. Uh, the numbers jumped substantially once uh, NATO air operations started from none to, so, to about 200 boats leaving per day to several thousand leaving per day. Um, that said, in case you're wondering, well, maybe people just started leaving once air operations started because they felt um, insecure. It must be noted that not one, no boats went to sea after the Gaddafi and his um, key cronies uh, left Tripoli in June. Uh, oh, no, it might have been slightly later, but in the summer. I have to check the date. In addition, the nature of the folks who were on the boats that left for Lampedusa and beyond changed over time from being a bit mixed to being a more heavily young male um, after their strikes started. And we have first-person witness accounts of officials who would otherwise stop people from leaving, uh, essentially saying, go ahead, um, as well as officials rounding up and sometimes putting people on boats, putting them to sea, and what is tr has been traditionally a costly journey to be moved across the Mediterranean suddenly became free. Um, so you also saw statements of government officials saying, yep, uh, their smuggling is a lucrative business, and we've been um, controlling it heretofore, but we're not going to do that anymore. So you're welcome to it. Uh, did the Europeans understand that they were being coerced? I would say unequivocally, yes. Um, we have several quotes here. I will add to this list uh, that Italian Foreign Minister Frattini said that we know the stronger the military pressure, the less able the Libyans will be to organize refugee outflows towards Europe. They knew exactly what was going on. Um, they felt precisely that they were being blackmailed. Um, Gaddafi's use of democratic bombs as a mafia extortion racket. This was attempt at coercion was well understood. Um, all this said, I mean, we know how it ends. Gaddafi is deposed. Uh, there's a new regime. One key outcome that um, hasn't been discussed, I think, enough, and indeed, when people talk about the history of the intervention into Libya, refugees are almost never mentioned. I don't know if anyone lo has looked at the two key, um, two lead articles in international security from last summer, two articles about R2P as a driver of the Libyan intervention. The word refugee appears only three times. In the Alan Cooperman article, it appears simply to note that there was a, a refugee crisis that resulted in Mali as a secondary effect of the Libyan intervention. Undoubtedly true, but what about the 800,000 who were displaced as a result of what happened in Libya? Um, in the Aiden Hare article, refugees come up twice. Uh, once in a laundry list of possible reasons the Europeans could have intervened. It was the last of maybe 10 reasons. Um, that could have informed Sarkozy's decision-making. And once to note, and I thought this is kind of a curious irony, once to note that Clinton um, invaded Haiti or was going to invade Haiti in 1994 to stop an outflow of, um, uh, to the United States, which 
as we've already discussed, was another piece of this kind of intervention. So people don't talk about the European fears of massive inflows as being either a driver or is it, in, in terms of the writing of the history of the conflict, does it come up as much of an issue in the context of the Libyan intervention? And I find this particularly disturbing in the context of a very unhumanitarian outcome of what was supposedly an R2P-driven intervention, which is to say that you know, Schengen has been tightened as a consequence. It, 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 the sort of protections that are supposed to be afforded to those fleeing violence and persecution has shrunk as a concrete response of European countries to a fear of a repeat of Libya. Um, so it used to be the case that uh, European member states wanted to close their borders now. They could do it pretty easily, but they had to, to go to Brussels and say, we're going to close our borders. You could do it for thir- they could do it for 30 days, and if they wanted to do it for longer, Brussels had to weigh in, and so on and so forth. As of last June, it is now the case that European member states unilaterally, without reference to Brussels, can close their borders uh, for up to a period of two years for a rather broad and vague set of reasons, The German member of the EU Parliament puts, it's a very woolly criterion. Right? We can, individual nation states can now basically close their borders for just about anything. And why did they say they were doing this? Because fears about what ha- might happen vis-a-vis Syria and so on. Right? Very humanitarian, unhumanitarian outcome of what was supposed to be a humanitarian-driven intervention. Um, so... I can go on to discuss potential policy responses. We can break for some questions and then come back to this. Uh, what, what are people's druthers? Keep going? Okay. Uh, so, potential target states um, are those who may find themselves subject to this kind of coercion. Uh, I argue have at least three non-mutually exclusive policy options at their disposal. And I'll walk through each of them in turn, but just to give you a sense of what's to come, they can essentially play this bargaining game with a better grasp of the rules. They can, if you will, make the bargaining game less attractive. Um, And they can, if you will, change the contestants, engage in regime change to make um, the the probability that it is attempted uh, less likely. Now, none of these three options is, as I say here, a magic bullet. Uh, All have clear limitations, but pretending this kind of coercion uh, doesn't happen or won't be attempted is not a useful policy option. Uh, It won't prevent it from being used, so um, it's worth at least considering the imperfect solutions that, or imperfect options that are on hand. So number one, uh, play better chess. If um, targets are successful, they may be able to forestall or uh, avoid um, a migration crisis altogether. Um, at least they may end up with um, smaller uh, outflows than they might otherwise experience. So if we're, to make this less abstract, effectively what I'm talking about is listening. If would-be coercers start making threats, it's time for some serious diplomacy. So we know, uh, based on how things played out 
in the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis the three crises with uh, Fidel Castro, that probably two, if not all three, let's say two of the three uh, Cuba crises could have been avoided if U.S. officials had been more attentive to uh, demands Castro was making on, um, and threats Castro was making in the lead-up to uh, opening the ports um, and allowing Cubans to leave. As I already mentioned, the Victor Palmieri example, make sure that those who are supposed to or might be tasked with dealing with potential outflows know about historical cases and know to be attentive uh, when um, threats or um, concern, you know, when, when um, concerns start to arise, when threats might be made. We can also all do a better job of resp responding to potential crises by recognizing that, like snow in Washington, D.C., it's not starting anew every year, oh my gosh, it snowed, what do we do? We know how to deal with these things, they happen routinely. Um, closer monitoring, right, coupled with responsive this diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy. I'm not saying, mind you, that when threats are, um, when threats are made, that potential target states should simply concede. But we don't want to encourage a whole series of Gaddafi's. Serial recidivism is not a good idea. Um, but what we do know historically is that uh, quite often targets do end up conceding. And so if you're going to end up with a negotiated settlement anyway, end up with a negotiated settlement before you have um, a, an ongoing crisis that one has to deal with. Once a migrant or a refugee uh, population is on the ground, Many cases, they're there for good. So, um, one other con, in, in, a t in addition to incursion recidivism, is that those who push for, if you will, proactive uh, responses to kind of preempt crises probably won't get a lot of political credit for it because crises that don't arise, like dogs that don't bark, they're very hard to chalk up. They're really hard to call successes in, in, um, in the political world. So visionaries need to think about this tool and should be using it, but they need to recognize that you may not be able to say, ha, it's been another year without a, without a potential crisis. Well, you know, good luck to you. Um, change the stakes. If one is uh, successful, the aim is to deter would-be coursers from trying to use this tool. And um, I'm going to step back for a second and say one of the key reasons, or a, fundamentally a key reason why this tool ever works is that uh, it's impossible for a leader faced with an influx to simultaneously accept a group of migrants or refugees and reject them. And yet, when faced with uh, a potential inflow, most modern industrialized states, and this also can happen in the developing world, usually the society divides into two groups, the pro-group and the anti-group. Because leaders cannot, as I say, simultaneously accept and reject a group, the incentives to concede to will be coercers' demands can go up. If, however, attitudes towards a given group of refugees or migrants is nearly universally positive, the capacity to coerce disappears because then the target can say, do your worst, right? We'll take them all. We love X group, right? Um, if the attitude towards a given group of migrants or refugees is almost universally negative, this is a little bit harder, but we can say universally, we're just not taking it. We're going to tighten Schengen. We cannot be coerced. 
states can abrogate their international commitments. Right? I'm not advocating this, but in terms of a strategy that targets um, can embrace, it's one that can make them less vulnerable to coercion. Uh, it can also build walls, right? improve border security, essentially uh, engage in better contingency planning. Uh, the U.S. has tried this vis-a-vis the Cubans. Uh, we do these military exercises. So Southcom now does these military exercises. Essentially, if there's another outflow from the Caribbean, we are prepared. Watch us move ships around the Caribbean to convince you that uh, we, you know, Florida will not be overwhelmed again. This can be done. Uh, Positives, right? Possible, probable reduction in coercive attempts. Here again, however, in terms of cons, um, dogs that don't bark, it'll be hard to um, uh, call political successes. There are real costs associated with investment. Educational campaigns tend to work under two circumstances. One is if one's already experiencing an acute crisis, then it can become a bit easier to mobilize support for an education campaign. Or if one has a visionary actor who essentially says, look, we know, all the research says that uh, over time, immigration is either in sort of a net um, has no effect or is a slight po- has a slight positive effect. If someone wants to get out in front and essentially say, this is not a problem for us. And in some countries where there are declining birth rates, this is actually a good thing. We should take in more people. Those visionaries, though, are thin on the ground. Right? It might be a good idea, but, but uh, we see few of them or heretofore haven't have seen few of them. Uh, in terms of the downsides of abrogating international commitments, I think and hope that the, that the cons assisted with that are straightforward. But just to be clear, uh, this could lead to a tragic race to the bottom in the context of um, you know, further reduction in support for those uh, fleeing violence and persecution, and that is a net dead weight loss for all of us. Finally, um, there's the option of changing the players, which is effectively a you know, code word for regime change. Undertake actions to eliminate the threat, uh, either through war or covert or overt regime change. Or through one can also, in a less, um, I guess one one can otherwise change the conditions on the ground in a state to induce those on the ground to try to uh, to be less um, less. Uh, amenable to uh, to leaving, or we might also push for domestic regime change. Positive positives that could come out of this are better conditions on the ground through the infusion of development aid. Uh, in terms of the downside, wars are costly. Outcomes are uncertain. Sometimes one ends up with regimes that are at least are arguably at least as problematic, or arguably uh, even less um, stable and um, more problematic for the domestic population than uh, their predecessors. Uh, some people we can have a discussion about the outcome in Iraq, for instance. Um, but this is a tool that is certainly popular among some, or at least has been popular with some governments, and I occasionally get asked about it. So I will end with this. Um, black humorous quote uh, um, well actually the the cartoon's black humorous the quote's just depressing Um, but it embodies the reason why this kind of um, coercion works in many parts of the world Uh, welcome questions